You know, it's amazing as we look at the story of Jesus and the arc of his life, and that's what we're doing in this, our current series of lessons. It's amazing to try to get a grip on how the first followers moved from who is this guy, amazing teacher, wow, to, to this. My, my only hope is Jesus, for my, my life is wholly bound to his. And how did that happen? And I, you get the sense that well, we, we know for sure, we know from our own experience. Uh, you know, you're walking along, this is me walking along. You're walking along, you're doing your life, you're going in a certain direction. It's sort of a self-ruled life. And at a certain point, you, you notice something off to the side. It may be because of something that you hear in a conversation, or maybe because of something you hear on a Sunday morning, or it may be because of crisis. But you notice something off to the side, and you turn, and you look, and you're stunned. And then you make the decision. And you turn, and you go this way instead of this way. The Bible calls that repentance. And I honestly think the story that we're going to hear today was the beginning of that process for the first disciples. We're going to hear today three categories of people who were stunned, surprised, unsettled by the story. And that's kind of going to be how we look at it, at this story. The way in which we're just unsettled by it. First, we're going to look at how unsettled the first witnesses were, the, the villagers in Galilee who heard it. Secondly, we're going to look at how surprised and unsettled the Pharisees were. And then we're going to look at how unsettling this is for us. So this story, I think, is where things begin to turn. It's awesome, and it's a very well-told story. You can be seated, and I want you to watch Kingston read this story for us. Good morning, everyone. This is my friend, Joel. Hi. Joel and I were just getting ready to read a Bible story. Would you like to read it with us? Our reading today is from Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. One day, while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they went up to the roof and took off some tiles. And then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, young man, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees and teachers of religious law said to themselves, who does he think he is? That blasphemy, only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately, as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God and everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe. And they praised God, exclaiming, we have seen amazing things today. This is one of my favorite stories about Jesus. 
I like it too. What's your favorite part? Well, this guy obviously needed physical healing, but the first thing Jesus said was that your sins are forgiven. There must have been something heavy on his heart, but he didn't have to say anything. Jesus just knew and had the power to heal his spirit. Yeah, that was amazing. I love how this crippled man immediately got up and walked. So Jesus' power not only healed him, but it strengthened him too. Do you think that can happen to us at home when we open up the Word? Like strength and healing are possible no matter what's going on? Absolutely. God's Word is very powerful, just like Jesus. Hey, what's your favorite part about this story? Talk about it today with your family. And thanks for reading with us. Bye. Bye. Uh, welcome to the third Sunday of Lent and our third Sunday walking through the stories of Jesus. And um, Diane, do you have a tissue so that I don't have to be weirdly sniffling the whole time because for some stupid reason I got emotional by that uh, opening. Uh, as I said, this story this morning, it has three surprises for us. I just wanted to get you on live stream. Uh, this story has, yes, yes, my cute wife. This story has three surprises for us. It's uh, the, 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 the villagers are surprised by what happens here and, and we need to hear why. Sorry. The Pharisees are surprised by what happens here and we need to hear why. And this is, this is surprising and unsettling for us, and we need to hear why. So first of all, the witnesses. When Kingston read this story, did you notice the crowd that was mentioned? Uh, Mark, in his account of this, one of the other biographers, he also mentions this story. In fact, Matthew does as well. This must have been one of their favorite stories about Jesus. And Mark describes the place as being packed. It was so overcrowded, you couldn't get in the door. And, and what a surprise this whole incident was for, for the villagers who were there. We'll hear why in a minute, but before we get to that, let's look at, back at how we got to this place. How did Jesus get here? So if you were here last week, you remember that Jesus came to Capernaum and he had driven out a, a demon from an unruly man in the synagogue. And from Mark's account, we learned that, that this story, the one that happened today, also happened in Capernaum. So we don't know if Jesus had stayed in Capernaum the whole time or if he had left and come back to Capernaum. It seems that the early part of his ministry, Capernaum was his home base, this little village right beside the Sea of Galilee. And he would travel around from village to village throughout Galilee, talking about the kingdom of God, talking about how to connect to God in an authentic way, and occasionally healing and confronting evil spirits in the spiritual world like we heard about last week. Uh, then he would return to Capernaum to rest and also do some teaching and ministry there. Now, we don't know during this period of his ministry how Jesus was supported. It wasn't a very expensive lifestyle. He said at one point to some of his followers, you know, uh, foxes have dens, birds of the air have nests, son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So he wasn't living very lavishly, but it, still, it required some kind of support. So was he practicing carpentry during this period? We don't know. Uh, there's no mention of that, but maybe. Was he receiving gifts from well-wishers and followers? Perhaps that's also not mentioned, but that would have been culturally appropriate. We just don't know. Uh, we do know that he began at this early part in his ministry to formally gather students around him. And he would uh, eventually call 12 young men to follow him and to learn. 
There was also an additional cadre of people who would be hanging out with them most of the time. We also know that beginning in this period, in fact, beginning with the story today, he was in pretty constant conflict with the religious leaders from Jerusalem. And this was one of the main themes of Jesus' ministry and of his life. And as I said, this story is kind of the starting place for that. Now, Jesus was clearly becoming well-known throughout Galilee and uh, already at this early point in his ministry. And when you think of Galilee, think of like a, a state in the United States. It was a whole region. He wasn't yet a bona fide rock star. I mean, he would be, but uh, he was already being followed by large crowds of people everywhere he went. However, throughout, but especially now, the crowds are very mixed in their reaction to him. And this is important to understand. I want you to listen to how one commentary put it because this sets us up to to feel the surprise of the crowd. This guy describes it like this. What follows in this conflict in our story proves that there was also a multitude of curious spectators who had not declared for either side. So, you know, are we for him or against him? We don't know. And, and what, we, what, we, what, I want you to, what I want us to see and what I want you to feel, first of all, this morning is that this large crowd of onlookers would have been surprised and unsettled by what happened here. So why do I say that? Well, they would have been surprised and unsettled because of the tension, because of the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Why all the drama with the, with the religious leaders? What's, what's going on here? They've got to be thinking that. Why, why, is this, why, why is it generating all of this drama? I mean, if he's a lunatic, then I ignore him. It'll just go away. But if he's really a miracle worker or, good grief, if he's the Messiah, I mean, isn't that a good thing? Why, why are the experts so upset with this? You know, I've... I've heard this idea before offered as an argument that authenticates Jesus. And the argument is, you know, after all, nobody ever got themselves killed by just telling people to love one another. In other words, the point of the argument is Jesus is far more than just a first century spiritual guru. If he hadn't been, he would have never gotten this kind of reaction from the religious authorities. Now, now, admittedly, This observation is small, but it forces us to deal with a really important takeaway. So hear this. This whole dynamic, this incredible drama between Jesus and uh, the religious authorities, in a way, it forces us to recognize that Jesus has to be taken seriously. Uh, it's, It's just not possible to approach Jesus in a casual way, at least not over the long run. Some at this point are following him wholeheartedly. Some are rejecting him. By the end of his life, it would be one or the other. There is no casual approach to Jesus. That's why at Gateway, we regularly will use the phrase, you know, all in. We need to be all in with him. I want you to imagine, I don't know if you've ever read about or seen a documentary of or heard about the, uh, the front line in World War I. But it was essentially a hundreds of miles long trench system with the allies, the French and British British on one side, dug into serious trenches, a trench system, in fact, and sometimes uh, two or three hundred yards away, sometimes as close as 30 or 40 feet away, there was a German 
trenching system. And, and these were facing one another with machine guns and cannons, constantly firing at one another. Occasionally, there would be a, a one, one side would, would try to run over the wall and, and attack the other side and gain, gain some ground. And it very rarely happened. The place in between was called no man's land. It was devastated. It had been bombed and gassed and machine gunned. There was unexploded ordnance. There were mines planted everywhere. There was barbed wire. I want you to imagine that we could teleport back to World War I and it's a beautiful day and we decide, let's take a casual stroll through no man's land. I'm from Switzerland, nobody fired. Nobody's going to hear that, first of all. It's not a place where you could be casual. In the same way, there's no such thing as a casual approach to Jesus. And yet, this is exactly the approach that our suburban lives force us toward, demand of us. We don't have the time or the energy to pursue Jesus all in, mostly, Plus, it's kind of socially awkward to get too serious about your religion. Uh, there, there, there are things that we do go all in on, like saving for the new house or, or taking the family to Hawaii next summer or our children's education. We put serious energy into those pursuits, but our religion, often for us, that's a nice add-on. But that kind of approach doesn't work, not in dealing with Jesus. He demands an all-in or all-out approach. I mean, it's possible for a while. Some of us approach it like this for years, but never over the long run. You may have never seen, but uh, one of mine and Diane's favorite movies is a movie called Ordinary People. And it's about a young, uh, well, middle-aged, suburban couple. They've got two teenage sons, and one of their sons they're both out in a boat, and uh, there's a, the boat capsizes, and one of their sons drowns. The older son, the favorite son of the family. And you learn over the course of the movie, when the movie opens, it's a nice-looking couple played by Mary Tyler Moore and Donald Sutherland, and uh, they're, they're handsome, and they've got a spectacular, beautiful home, and their, their son looks to be terrific. And this story unfolds over the course of the movie, and we realize that, that mom deeply resents younger son, uh, probably wishing if somebody had to die, it should have been him, frankly. And there's this tension where dad defends younger son, mom attacks younger son, mom and dad end up fighting with one another, and the tension grows over the course of the movie. Spoiler alert, by the way, this came out in like 1980, so if you haven't seen it, I don't feel bad about spoiling it for you. But uh, at, toward the end of the movie, there's this really poignant scene where Donald Sutherland is up all night, he can't sleep, he just is feeling this drama between he and his wife. And he's downstairs sitting at their beautiful uh, dining room table. And Mary Tyler Moore comes down the steps and she, she sees him at the table. She says, honey, you know, are you okay? He doesn't answer. She comes over closer to him and puts a hand on him. And he says, you are beautiful. And we would have been fine if there hadn't been any mess but you can't handle mess. This whole scene with the paralyzed man was surprising, unsettling. It was messy for those who were there. Jesus just doesn't allow a neat, casual approach to himself, not for very long. We have to decide, are we all in or are we not? To this I hold, my only hope is Jesus. 
for my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me, all in. Okay, secondly, this, this whole scene was surprising and unsettling for the Pharisees who were there. Luke tells us that they had come from every village in Galilee. That might have been an exaggeration, but they'd come from all over, and he makes note from Jerusalem. So the big guns are here. Now, the center of religious authority and activity in the time of uh, Jesus' life was Jerusalem. It was, it was the capital, and it was the place where the, it was the home of the temple. And the center of authority of the center of Jerusalem, of, of Israel, was the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees, as an organization, were the most important religious organization. This was also the organization out of which the high priests would come. And, and remember, Israel, at this point in, in its history, or throughout its history, Israel had been, not at this point in its history, actually, but throughout its history, Israel had been a theocracy. Theocracy is a, a fancy word, which means, you know, America is a democracy. Israel was a theocracy, which means it was ruled by God. It was, it was governed over by God's laws or, or uh, God's rules. Now, at the time of Jesus' life, of course, they weren't an active theocracy. They were ruled by Rome. But in their internal affairs, Rome still allowed them to act as if they were a theocracy. So one of the things that that meant is that religious orders like the Sadducees or Pharisees that we read about in the New Testament, they were like political parties and not just religious. This meant that a gathering of the Pharisees like the one we read about in our story, especially since some of them had come from Jerusalem, this was a big stinking deal. It was, it was part religious and it was part political. You see, they weren't in Capernaum just to see Jesus. The, the ruling Pharisees would take regular trips throughout Judea and throughout Galilee. They would, you know, connect the people to God, but also connect them to Jerusalem. It was kind of part political rally, uh, part revival campaign when they came, but no doubt. This trip had some added mustard to it because they had heard about this, this Jesus fellow. And, and they would have been asking themselves, okay, is this guy, you know, a nut job? Or is he a harmless local yokel? Or is he a heretic? And, and they, would have, they would have also had to wonder, you know, how much trouble is he stirring up? How, how, how much is he disturbing the peace? I mean, a guy like this could, could upset the balance. Throughout the region of Galilee, it had happened before with people like Jesus. So uh, he was gathering large crowds. He'd said to be a miracle worker. He was an awesome teacher. And, th and they had no idea who he was. Jesus had not come up through their ranks. So uh, they needed to go check him out. Don't miss that. They needed to go check him out. They believed that was their job, to go check him out. And then the whole incident proved to be profoundly unsettling for them. And let's make sure we understand why. This is important. It wasn't surprising or unsettling for them because Jesus was drawing such a large crowd. This might have made them a bit nervous, but they had dealt with worse than this. There, there, there were plenty of zealot leaders who had come along and gathered large followings and had become problematic. The Pharisees had seen that before. It also wasn't unsettling because of his claim to be able to forgive sins. They make a big deal out of that, and this was awful. 
But this was not what unsettled them. They had dealt with heresy before. They were experts at dealing with heresy. They knew how to do that. No. This was unsettling for the Pharisees because of what happened at the end of the story. Jesus actually performed a miracle. He healed a paralyzed man fully and in front of the whole village, get up, take up your mat and go home. And he did. And he praised God and everybody there praised God. What in the world do we do with that if you're a Pharisee? Look, I don't want you to miss here as an aside. I don't want you to miss how brave Jesus is at that moment. Take up your mat and go home. I can, you know, as I was reading this this week, I remembered a time here on a Sunday morning, here in our building, a couple of years ago, I, it was a pretty large crowd. I think it was our 11 o'clock service. And I got, I had one of those stupid moments like I had a minute ago. And I, you know, I got overwhelmed and I felt, I was certain that uh, God was stirring in someone's heart here. And once in a while, I, you know, I'll get that sense, and I, I really believed that there was someone who was here that day that needed to make a decision for Christ. They had never gone all in. They had never come to that point, been surprised, and turned. And I thought, wow, they're here, and they need to make a decision. So I departed a little bit from what we were talking about that day, and I took a moment at the end, and I said, you know, I believe someone is here, and uh, I would like to give you an opportunity to respond. We're not going to do anything emotional. We're not going to have any music. I just want to take a moment and give you a moment to respond. So if you're here today and if you need to respond for Jesus, I want you to stand. <laughs> no one stood. So I'm hoping none of you remember that because I do. And so then, then I decided, well, let's get tricky. How about Let's take another moment and all of you close your eyes. That was part to create space for this person. It was part to save my self-embarrassment. We all closed our eyes. And at a certain point, I wanted to say, oh, I see you. God bless you, even though no one was standing. Because it was embarrassing for me to say, hey, would you stand? And no one did. Think about how brave this is. Jesus looks at this guy who's been <laughs> paralyzed his whole life. Capernaum's not that big. They all know this guy. Rise take up your mat and walk. Anyway, this whole scene, this is surprising and deeply unsettling for the Pharisees because of what it says about Jesus. Heresy or miracle worker? What do we do with this? Think about it. They have, they have no idea what to make of all this. They have to wonder, first of all, I'm sure they wondered, is this a parlor trick? I mean, could this guy really walk and this was a setup? Uh, was this guy really parallel, paralyzed? Because they have no real category for this. I believe that's why their analysis of these events got much, much darker over the years. They needed some kind of explanation. They needed a handle on this. After all, they were the experts. So behind the scenes, they started to develop much darker explanations for this. Eventually, they're going to say to Jesus, it's, it's because you have the power of Satan that you can do these things. They went that dark with this because they, they had to have some explanation. And let's face it, it was also unsettling for them because of what it said about their world. I mean, Jesus clearly destroyed all of their categories. Teacher, rabbi, scribe, 
Sadducee, Pharisee, even healer. They've got categories like that, but not like this guy. I remember many years ago when I was a teenager, I remember my grandfather telling me about the time my grandfather was older when they started having children. My mother was older when she had me, so my grandfather was born in the 18, early 1890s. And he was a teenager the first time he ever saw a car. And I remember him telling me this experience. He was out in a field. He'd heard of cars before, heard about them, but he'd never seen one, never heard one. He was in a field playing one day, and he heard this noise that he'd never heard before. He knew what it was. He ran as fast as he could across the field. He got to the dirt road, and he saw this metal box blazing past at unbelievable speed. And he said, it was so shocking. I had no category for it. It changed my life. My grandfather would grow up to own a car dealership. It literally did change his life. If what Jesus did here in this story was all legit, the Pharisees would have to admit that they didn't get it, that maybe they weren't as expert as they thought. Jesus was even contradicting some of their teachings. They would have had to admit that they were wrong about some critical things, and and, then this is a big one. Uh, If this was legit, they'd have to admit that God was involved with this man and through this man. Now, of course, God can do anything he wants in theory, but not, not actually, not like this, and not through a person like this. I believe there are a couple of critical takeaways for us from this surprise. First of all, we have to forget our categories. There's no category that captures Jesus. This is especially for those of you who like to control things, those of you who love your to-do list and you love to check boxes. Be careful. You cannot approach Jesus this way. He's something completely different. And secondly, and more importantly, this all means that there is no problem to which Jesus is not the solution. There's no problem to which Jesus is not the solution. This is what bothered the Pharisees. This podunk rabbi just performed a miracle, like, unlike anything they've ever seen. And how in the world could that be the case? How in the world could he do that? Can, can he do anything? Is he the answer to everything? I mean, yes. I remember I had a, a seminary professor uh, years ago when I was in seminary who was well known for his, being a scatterbrain. And he would often get lost during his lectures. He would be talking about something, and then he'd just wander off, start talking about something else, completely lose his place. So early in every semester, I had him several semesters, and early in the semester, he would always tell the same story, trying to remind us, you know, you need to keep up with where I am, because if I lose my place, I need you to tell me where I am. And he told us about this one time where he was talking, and then he got distracted by something. He started talking about something completely different, and he realized he was completely off his lecture, so he came back, and he, he needed to get back on topic, and he looked at someone in the front row uh, and said, yeah, what was I talking about? And this guy... Dr. Lovely says this guy looked completely, he was timid, looked completely terrified. He didn't know what he had been talking about. And he said, Jesus? Of course, this was Dr. Lovelace's famous, uh, favorite punchline. Jesus is always the answer, and he is. This is the point here. Jesus is always the right answer for us. Jesus is always 
The answer, through Jesus, we have access to God's immense power. Because of Jesus, we can rightly and fully be connected to one another and to God. Because of Jesus, anything is possible. No matter what our problem is, Jesus is the solution. Can you see the conflict for the Pharisees? They, they wanted to find the right category for this guy. They've come to Capernaum to examine this local yokel, this potential troublemaker. They believed it's their job to solve this problem, whatever the problem is, and instead they met the problem solver. They, they think it's their job to, to find the answers, and instead they meet the answer. And if that's true, it means that we can bring our problem to Jesus today. It's not too big. It's not too long. It's not too hard. It's not too old. No matter what it is, we can bring our problem to Jesus and find the answer. All right, thirdly, this uh, incident is unsettling for us. And I want us to hunker down on this one for a minute. So, so this group of friends brings a uh, paralyzed man. They hear Jesus is in Capernaum. He's teaching in a local house. It might have been fairly informal and they get there, the crowd is so large, they can't get in, so they get up on the roof somehow, they break through the roof, and they lower the paralyzed guy down in front of Jesus and while he's teaching. And then Jesus says something surprising, doesn't he? Even unsettling for us. He's obviously moved by the faith of the friends and the paralyzed guy, so Jesus says, pause for dramatic effect. Friend, your sins are forgiven. This is where Jesus started. Your sins are forgiven. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. In effect, Jesus is saying, this is your real need, friend, your sinfulness. So now you're forgiven. This is unsettling for us because we don't really believe this is our problem. I'm imagining this happening today at a, one of the larger homes down in Virginia Manor, one of these local neighborhoods. And Jesus is there, and he's teaching places packed. So there's a, a few people in the neighborhood who have a good friend who's been in a wheelchair for years. He's paralyzed. They've heard that Jesus can do amazing things, so they get, grab the van, pick him up, take him down, wheel him up. They can't get anywhere near the house. They, the, the front yard has even got people in it. So they pick up the wheelchair, drag the thing around the yard to the backyard, and they realize that they can get up on the, the deck. So they get up on the deck, they pry open the French doors, and they, they just kind of force their way uh, up to the front. Place their friend in the chair in front of Jesus. And Jesus smiles and, and commends them for their effort and their faith. And then he gently looks at the friend in the wheelchair and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. I think Mr. Uh, Virginia Manor says, thank you, but it's not exactly what we're here for. <laughs> Forgiveness of sins, this is not my presenting problem, Jesus. And Jesus' response is, Yes, it is. This is your most pressing problem. You're, you're a mess. And you need to be forgiven. 
This is deeply unsettling. We think that our biggest problem is the paralysis that we're struggling with. I mean, that's obviously the problem. The, the series of financial pitfalls that we've fallen into or the, the, the marriage that's falling apart or my chronic illness or my cancer diagnosis or my daughter's disability. That's the problem, Jesus. And Jesus' response is unsettling. Think about this paralyzed man. We don't know about his story, really. But there is one thing that we know for sure. We know that this man is deeply burdened with shame. Here's how we know. Um, The idea that our problems, physical and circumstantial, all of our problems are the result of our sin, that was deeply rooted in their thinking. Easy life equals God's blessing. Difficult life equals God punishing my sin. This equation was standard operating procedure for the Jews in in the first century. In fact, Jesus had to upend this thinking many times in his teaching. And, And this guy had been outside synagogue on many Sabbaths listening to that sermon. So he knew it well and he knew the shame. I don't know if you know the research of Uh, Brene Brown, but she's an author and professor who's done extensive research on shame. She has a TED Talk dealing with the topic. She makes an interesting distinction between shame and guilt, by the way. She says that uh, guilt focuses on our behavior. I did something bad. Shame focuses on ourself. I am bad. Think about that. Shame, in other words, is preoccupied with itself. It's a negative, very damaging preoccupation with self, but it's focused on itself. Shame forces us to a wrong view of ourselves, and that wrong view dominates our field of vision. Shame is a stain on our soul that discolors every decision we take. Brown says, shame isn't, listen to this, shame is an unspoken epidemic. It's the secret behind many forms of broken behavior end quote. It may very well be that the most dangerous epidemic facing us is not the coronavirus. It it may be shame. Interestingly, Brene Brown also says the shame operates differently in men and women. You might recognize this. In women, shame says, who do you think you are? You've got to be perfect. You've got to do it all and get it all right. In men, shame says you're not enough. You don't have what it takes. You can't be weak. If Jesus had simply, if Jesus had simply healed this man's paralysis, well, this man would have been dancing and singing. He would have been elated. He would have been a completely new man for a few weeks. And then something would have happened or something wouldn't have happened that he wanted to happen and the stain would reappear. The self-doubt, the self-evaluation, the voice of shame and guilt, it would have resurfaced. This man's deepest need was forgiveness, and it's ours as well. A clean slate, a right relationship with God, new eyes to see ourselves rightly, not old tapes, freedom. This man needed forgiveness, and so do we, and we have to come back to it repeatedly because the stain will reappear. Think about this from another angle, completely different angle. Think about us operating without forgiveness and and trying to 
lead a moral life. For instance, think about our need to forgive others. Remember, Jesus told us that we must forgive those who have wronged us. Now, our culture struggles with this. Our culture says, come on, Ed. You can't insist on forgiveness. If you do, then you don't understand oppression. You're not woke enough. I, I, need to, I don't need to offer forgiveness. I need justice. Well, now, God is a God of justice, and I've talked about justice many times from this spot. I believe in justice, and I believe justice is coming. But that's completely backwards. Have you ever heard the saying that unforgiveness is like Drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Jesus commanded us to forgive because otherwise bitterness and anger will dominate us. Forgiveness is the only way we can guarantee that our oppressors will not have control over us. But, here's the connection point, but we can't forgive if we are shackled by shame. There's not enough space our pain is too self-referential. We're stuck on ourselves. The internal need will be too great to move toward forgiveness. The stain will dominate our field of vision. We're trapped. Plus, we can't forgive if we feel superior. We can only truly forgive if we've been forgiven. We can, we can, if we understand what it means to be set free, then we can set someone else free. We, we, we have offended and, and we've been released from the consequences of that. And knowing that gives us the freedom to forgive others. We need forgiveness. That's our primary need. That's where real emotional and spiritual health starts for us. We need Jesus. All right, I want you to notice one more thing about this incident. Did you notice that the par uh, uh, Kingston friend, Kingston's friend made this observation. Did you notice that the paralyzed man didn't ask for forgiveness? It's clear from Scripture we have to ask, by the way. This is how we express our faith. This is, this is how we step toward him. You know, Father, please forgive me. I, I'm shrouded by shame, and it's all about me. I need to be set free. Please forgive me. I've done some things that are contrary to you and your ways. Please set me free. But this man doesn't ask. I think it's because Jesus knew. Jesus knew this man's shame at believing that he was in this position because of his own sin. Jesus knew the stain. So Jesus went to meet him. Jesus went into the shame and met this man's heart where it was. Jesus knew the request was so deep and so tender, it couldn't even be spoken, and Jesus answered anyway. That's how gentle Jesus is. That's how free he is with his grace. Notice Jesus didn't say, you know, I can forgive you, but you need to ask. And then the paralyzed man says, forgive me of my sins. And Jesus says, you didn't say please. That's not Jesus' approach. He's so gentle. He's so, he's so tender. He's so free with his grace. The account right before this one, and I, I encourage you to go read it sometime this afternoon. Right before this story in Luke 5, Jesus heals a leper. When he heals this leper, Jesus touches the leper. He didn't need to touch the leper. He could have been a mile away. You're healed. He touches the leper because lepers never got touched. He's so tender. 
He's so free with his grace. This is a man we can trust. Let me end this morning with one uh, important observation. You know, these Pharisees were right about the blasphemy charge. I mean, no one can forgive sins but God. Sin is an offense against Almighty God. By definition, he's the only one who can forgive. I want you to imagine that um, uh, Mike and Reggie and I go to lunch today uh, after church, and we get into a little bit of a dispute, and, and Mike has had enough, so he reaches across the table and punches Reggie in the face. Reggie's nose is bleeding. <laughs> Sorry to be laughing, Reggie, but Reggie's nose is bleeding. It gets all over his shirt, and it's a, it's a mess. Well, we drive back to the church, take our separate cars, and go home, and, you know, I can just tell Mike is feeling really bad. He's not even saying anything. We, we all get out of the car. We come up to the front of the building, and Mike is feeling awful. So I go over to Mike, and I say, Mike, you know, you're forgiven. I think at a certain point, Reggie might say, uh, excuse me, Pastor, my nose is broken. I think I'm the only one that can forgive here. This is the nature of the blasphemy charge. No one can, what do you mean you're forgiven? No one can forgive sins but God alone. So this is blasphemous. Unless Jesus is far more than a local rabbi. You see, if Jesus is the one that can remove the stain. I heard uh, Pastor Tim Keller tell a great story. It's a, a, a Scottish fable. And I didn't, I didn't even know uh, Scottish people had fables. I thought they had drinking songs. But it's a Scottish fable, and it's called The, uh, the Black Bull of Norway. It's a, it's, a kind of a, it's a kind of a Cinderella story. I'm, I'm hearing it from Tim Keller, but uh, uh, I've looked it up on Wikipedia, and it's a really complicated, convoluted story. But anyway, it ends up, toward the end of it, uh, the, this young servant girl who's already been through a lot, but she goes to live with a witch, and the witch has daughters, and she's mistreated, so hence the Cinderella theme. And at a certain point, there's a prince in the land, and I, I don't remember if he's in a battle, or he gets some kind of injury, and he just gets blood all over his garment, and he can't get the blood out. Isn't that good storytelling? He just cannot get the blood out of his garment. So he takes his garment and he says, whoever can get the blood out of my garment will be my one true love. So it ends up at this house and uh, the servant girl knows nothing about the story. She just sees the garment there one day and she picks it up, does the wash and the stain comes out. Hangs it on the line. The witch sees it, grabs it, grabs his, her oldest daughter, runs to the castle and says, look, my, my daughter got the stain out. I don't know how the story evolves from there. The prince realizes it wasn't the daughter and eventually discovers that it was the servant girl who got the stain out. So they, of course, get married, he and the servant girl, and they live happily ever after because the one who can remove the stain is his one true love. The one who can remove the stain is our one true love. It's Jesus. This is our need, to have the stain removed. And he's the only one that can do it. Let's pray.
Jesus, I, I'm going to thank you for your sacrifice, your bravery, your power. We're amazed. And we acknowledge this morning, you are the answer to every question we're asking. It's weird to even think that. I, we, look, we're, we're surprised and unsettled because, I don't know, how do we pay our taxes? It doesn't seem like Jesus is the answer, but you are. And we acknowledge that this morning, and we're so sorry, any of us who have been casual in our approach to you this week. We've been far too casual. And some of us, Lord, that's been our approach all along. We've never gone all in. And, and Lord Jesus, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning or anyone watching at home who has never gone all in with you, I pray that today you would speak in a way that they can understand and that their heart would be broken and that they would turn and see you in a new way and that they would say, I need to be forgiven, please forgive me. And that you would come in and be the Lord and the ruler of their life. I pray that they would turn their heart and their life over to you today. And for those of us, Lord, who need to renew that, we do so now. We're in with you. We're all in. Hear us. And we give you full and complete permission to remind us on Thursday, if we've forgotten, you remind us that today we said we're all in and we meant it. You are the stain remover and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.